0: Good afternoon, church. Amen. Amen. Uh, a bit delayed. Good afternoon, hope church. Amen. Amen. Uh, so next week I will not be preaching here. Uh, we're gonna uh, we're wearing our, our seventh of seven of the church of the letters to the churches of Revelation. Next week we're gonna finish. I told you we'd finish in chapter three, but. Four is too good, so I'm pretty sure we won't go further into five and then towards the end of Revelation. I'm pretty sure, but we're definitely planning to end in chapter four uh, and then pick up Colossians in the new term. But over the next couple of weeks, uh, Craig Island, who is our uh, original uh, church planter of Hope Church up in Logan, is actually going to be, uh, be here for Stanford and will also be preaching here. Um, uh, I didn't mean to inflict you with him two weeks in a row, but the, all, all of the movements went around, and then I sent him to another church to preach, and then he ends up being here twice. So he's gonna be a—he's a great expositor of the word, uh, my favorite preacher. Um, if you have uh, uh, unsaved people uh, uh, and friends and whatnot in your family, please, please bring them along. He's very evangelistic and. They will uh, uh, be blessed by hearing the gospel that uh, Great preaches, which is, I can say he's a better preacher, but he doesn't have a better gospel than me. So can you open up to Revelation 3 as we continue our work through uh, this final, this final of the letters that Jesus spoke to the churches? It is, of course, the letter to Laodicea, the very famous passage with the famous uh, phrase that is often used, the lukewarm church. I'm going to read for us uh, what, uh, what Jesus says to the Laodicean church, and then we will begin to open up what that might look like and uh, what the applications, of course, for us would be. The Lord God says in his inspired word, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, The words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. On his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and may God bless the reading of his own inspired and authoritative word in our midst this afternoon. The Laodicean church is a lukewarm church that Jesus says makes him want to hurl. This is the kind of church we can say each week I've tried to make some modern applications. What would this look like in our day? What sort of example church? I haven't been naming names, but I'm just explaining what we might experience if we were to become a church that felt like this. And, and this week we arrived at a church that is utterly lukewarm. There is no difference in, in, the, in the temperature that you might feel from the outside world and the inside of the church. They, they just have walls that defy build them. They just have a few people on staff that are called pastors. But really, there is no difference in temperature between the world and the church. It's the kind of church that you go to more to hang out with your friends than to meet with the living God. It's the sort of church that you go to where the biggest issue on any members meeting that you have is always the colour of the carpets or the type and style of music that you're using during worship. That's the big issue. It's the sort of church where the statement of faith has phrases like no creed but the Bible, non-denominational, and relationship not a religion, stuff like that. It's the sort of church that you go into and the songs that you sing are technically songs, and they mention God or some theme of God every now and then. Well, every, every couple of songs at least. And they have lots of, lots of themes of things like mountains and rivers and rain and valleys. There's always a valley. Uh, and, and a token nice guy gets up and he speaks about... Usually it's about character or relationships. Yeah, that's usually the two sermons that he's got that he changes around. Uh, his favorite words are authenticity, doing life together... Getting real with God and you. You're one of his favorite things. He's always talking about you. your Goliath, you and your mountain, you and your valley, you and your dragon, you and your storm, you and your leprosy, whatever weird analogy he wants to pull. It's always about you and you kind of like that. It's really nice. Uh, he just tells a lot of stories about his dog and his kids and the application of most sermons is we just got to trust God a bit more. Uh, you're always glad when you sit through those sermons because of course he never mentions your sins like pornography, fornication, uh, gossip, uh, disrespect towards parents, unsubmissiveness to your husband or spiritual neglect of your wife, disregard of your children's growth in the Lord, dishonoring the Lord's Day, crude joking, coveting other people's blessings, laziness, love of money, general worldliness. He doesn't mention any of your sins, which makes you feel really good, because he can sit through and not feel bad for a couple of minutes each week. In fact, he doesn't mention any sin, which is, which is quite nice and polite of him. Conversations after church drop dead if you bring up the passage we were just hearing from or ask questions about the Bible. They sort of go very quiet. Do you remember, of course, that you have, to, you have to keep a tally on which friends of yours are sleeping around together this month so that you don't get anybody in trouble with the pastor or their parents. It's the sort of church that you're very glad we don't do church discipline. If you try and bring up a conversation, of course, about doctrine or correct somebody's theology, a slightly older Christian will pull you aside and Remind you of a time when somebody tried to bring theology into this church and it got quite divisive. So remember, God loves a childlike thing. You get rebuked for that. Men in the church are generally little boys, mentally and spiritually, who don't work very hard in their jobs and don't know the Bible very well. The guys who do know their Bible pretty well and do work hard end up leaving and finding somewhere else to go. Uh, The people who don't know the Bible well but do work pretty hard are fairly worldly and keep their riches for themselves instead of being generous and giving towards the kingdom. Uh, And they usually neglect the church and family. Uh, Evangelism doesn't happen except the fact that they've got a church sign out front. And that does the evangelism for us. That lets them know that there's a church here. Uh, And uh, spiritual women in the church tend to rise up to leadership because the men won't. And those who aren't so spiritual find other ways of getting sinful attention. Uh, If the church closed tomorrow, this is how you know it's a lukewarm church. If the church was to close tomorrow, the community would have no idea of any difference. No difference would happen in the lives of the sinners and lost world around them. All in all, you know what? People find it a pretty good church, this church, this Laodicean type church, except they don't really know how to find a good church or a church at all. But you know what? It feels like people love Jesus, and it's good news that Jesus loves us, so we all get along. That's the 21st century style of the Laodicean lukewarm church. I wonder if any of that sounds familiar to you and your past experiences. Not here, don't put your hand up here and say amen. But in your other churches that you've grown up in, you've visited, you've gone to, you've you've tried out. I don't know, we're we're not going to bash any churches. The point is that we would would, uh, lay ourselves under the heavy weight of what this text would say towards us. Who tend towards, you have to realise that lukewarmness is always the default. There is not an intentional swimming upstream, an intentional repentance and being transformed by the power of the word. We will end up lukewarm like Laodicea. So let's meet the Lord that they profess to worship. This church that was planted by Paul or one of his missionaries at some point during Acts chapter 19, when he was preaching in Ephesus, that started well. They had the gospel, they had hardworking ministers. At some point they became extremely lukewarm. And this is how Jesus introduces himself to them as he opens up this letter. Look at verse 14. He says, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The the words of the Amen. The only other place in all the Bible where the word Amen is used as a name is in Isaiah 65, verse 16, and it's talking about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. That He is the God of the Amen, the God of truth, ESV will translate that. In the Hebrew, that would be the same word. So I think what Jesus is saying there, and we'll get into a little bit deeper in a moment, but he's saying, I'm that God. You go and read Isaiah, who says that there's only one God. There's only one, there's not multiple gods. All of your idols need to be thrown in the fire. There's only one God. He is before all others. He controls all things. Only he can save. Jesus is saying, I am that God. I am the God of amen, the God of truth. And secondly, he calls himself the faithful and true witness which matches up with chapter one, verse five. Remember in chapter one, verse five, when John calls Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the firstborn of God's, uh, the firstborn from the dead. Well, so likewise here, Jesus calls himself the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. We spoke back in chapter one, in fact, that would have been our very first sermon where we reminded ourselves that being the faithful and true witness is, uh, is sort of that prophetic language. In other words, Jesus is the messenger who can always be trusted. Jesus is the messenger who, who reveals what the Father has given him to reveal and he always does it accurately and perfectly and honestly. So that whatever Jesus says of God is trustworthy. Whatever Jesus says and shows through his ministry and life and death in our place, that is a faithful witness of what God is like. He speaks the truth. He is the truth. Unlike Laodicea, who were faithless witnesses. They were in their city and in their town, totally compromised, not evangelizing, not witnessing, not dying for their faith, not even living for their faith. And Jesus is saying, in contrast, I am the faithful witness. But it gets even more interesting if you're a bit of a Revelation nerd and you've been getting excited lately, like I have, about Revelation. When we get to this third part that he says, I am the beginning of God's creation. Now, it kind of sounds like he's a Jehovah's Witness at this point, uh, or some form of Mormon, and Jesus believes that he was created. And he was created first, like the JWs would tell us, he was the greatest creation, but he is in fact not the true God, he is a creation of the God. Well, he's just opened up here telling us that he is the God of the Amen. So no, that's not an option. He is God, and he's the beginning of God's creation. Here's why I think this should not even be a a worry for us, because I don't even think that's talking about the first creation. This language, he is the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, is a direct parallel of chapter 1 verse 5 where he said I, that Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. We explained back in chapter 1 when we were saying he's the firstborn from the dead, is that he is the beginning of the resurrection world that we will all live in one day. That he was firstborn from the dead and he opened the doors so that everybody who believes in him can walk free from the grave into eternal life. And so he's saying here that I am the beginning of God's creation, not the first creation, but the new creation, the second creation, the new heaven and the new earth, which is going to be promised to us in chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. He's saying that new creation that is coming, I am the first starting domino for that. I am the first bit, the rest will come later. And in between, Jesus' resurrection. And the whole world being recreated and resurrected, in between, we now live in the spiritual era of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus has said here, I am the beginning of that creation, that new creation. That Jesus is the essence. He is the centrality. He is the whole point of the new heaven and the new earth. Because he says he is the beginning of the new heaven and new earth, it is therefore uh, logical to say that wherever Jesus is, there is the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. So the way there is a people who are in Christ by faith and living out his commandments and trusting his salvation and preaching his word, we are living in and living out into the world the spiritual sense of the new heaven and the new earth. This new heaven and new earth is not simply something purely future. It has started already because Jesus kick-started it. There's this other clue, this other reason that it's, it's, it's really a no-brainer that Jesus is talking about that, is because he's quoted already from Isaiah 65, verse 16, which is where God calls himself the God of Amen. The very next verse, Isaiah 65, verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So this is a promise from the Old Testament, that God's going to bring in a salvation one day that will be so glorious that we won't pine for, we won't remember, we won't hope for the old way, the old covenant, the old way that they used to live and and relate to God. We won't pine for that, we won't even remember what that's like because we weren't even in it. Instead, we are looking forward, not back. Our greater days as Christians is not the cool Old Testament days when they heard God's voice and stuff. The greater days for the Christian is now and into the future where bit by bit Jesus is bringing forth the power and the reality of his new heaven and new earth. It's a promise from the Old Testament that God would make the new heaven and new earth and then Jesus is the amen, the faithful and the true witness who brings an answer to all of God's promises. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 when Paul says the Son of God, Jesus Christ, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So if you can bear it, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that all of God's promises center on me, including the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. I am the point of that promise. And I am the God of amen who has brought the new heavens and the new earth to their beginning. Now in a spiritual sense and later when I return in a physical sense. That's what Jesus is saying to the church of Laodicea. And here's why he's saying it to them. This applies at least in two ways. First of all, a lukewarm church is lukewarm because they have forgotten that the ultimate and most important reality at any point in any decision in any part of your life is the fact that Jesus has lived, died, resurrected, and is now ascended and ruling over everything. Jesus is our Saviour and Lord. That is the ultimate truth, the most important truth at every part of your life. They've forgotten that, and so Jesus became a trinket for them. Religion became something cool that you do in life, or it was a, it was a tag on the end of the, you know, the rest of your lifestyle to get you eternal life or something. It was not the centre truth. This is what he's reminding of them. There. There, is, there is nothing more fundamental There is nothing more important or gloriously true than the fact that Jesus is God, the creator of the earth, but also the creator of the new heaven and the new earth for all those who trust in him. So it's an ultimate reality. It's of ultimate importance. But secondly, the reason that Jesus is reminding them of this is because Jesus himself was dead. The one who begins the new creation, who is the God of amen, the faithful and true witness, he himself was dead. Remember, he died on a cross and was buried. So for him to be saying to a church that me, the formerly dead one, am going to be recreating the entire universe with new perfect life, then that has to come with some implication to a dead church. That no matter how dead you are, no matter how big and dead you are, no matter how bad you smell or how long you've been dead, church, There is regenerating power. There is resurrection power. There is repenting power to a church that is zealous and repents. If Jesus brought himself back to life and then will bring the entire universe back to life, then he will have no problem in bringing a church back to life if they will repent. That's why he's starting there. Nothing is too dead or too lost or too sinful or too much of a mess for Jesus not to be able to bring it back into conformity to what God commands. So that's Jesus standing in front of the Laodicean church, speaking to them, introducing himself to them. Now look at verse 15 and 16 as we meet the lukewarm Laodicea. Jesus says, I know your works. And that's supposed to be scary because they know that there's no works to be impressed by. They're not about to be commended or given a good grade. He says, I know the works you're not doing. I know the evil works you are doing. I know your works. You are neither. Cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The language of gagging, wrenching, and hurling up onto the pavement. The language of hot. Uh, um, usually, people think of it this way. Jesus says, being hot is being on fire in your faith and really zealous for the Lord, and being cold is, you know, being an unbelief, not being a Christian which would be very strange as to why Jesus would commend them to be either cold or hot, and not just purely hot. The language is not a spectrum of how spiritual you are, either cold, lukewarm, or hot, to which Jesus says, for some reason, the middle is the worst. What Jesus is saying is he's actually just drawing on their geographical, uh, historical uh, uh, resources. The reality is that uh, Laodicea did not have its own water supplies the ones immediately around it were quite actually toxic and they would make you throw up. So what they had to do was, they would channel in waters from, uh, uh, from Hierapolis, which had hot springs there. And the hot springs were, were used, and the hot water was often used as sterilization and a, very, a, a great medicinal effect. Right, it was, it was a health thing to have hot water and hot springs. And then down, downstream a little bit was uh, Colossae. And Colossae had really cold, fresh spring water. So in other words, you've got these these two water supplies, either side of them, healthy cold water, refreshing and cool, healthy hot water that is sterilizing and medicinal, and then in the middle, you've got the people who have neither, nothing good for them, everything that they pump in and out of them is sickening, it kills them, and it makes people hurl up. It was an emetic. So Jesus is saying to them that they are supposed to be a spring of life Out of which comes gospel truth and cleansing holy words and to whom the nations can run and sinners can flee to a church that is preaching the gospel and take in what they're putting out and they will be saved. Think of uh, the picture of Isaiah that he says in chapter 55 verse 1 and 6 and 7. In Isaiah 55 verse 1, God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's supposed to be the idea of the church. That sinners can run to it and hear soul-saving words that cleanse them. But instead, Jesus is saying of Laodicea that they are sickening. It. It's worse for sinners to come to them because they get—they they are turned into these lukewarm, sick, corrupted beings that can try and call themselves Christians. They are not healthy, cold, healthy, hot. They are this disgusting mix of lukewarmness. So Jesus will hurl them out of his mouth. Look at the sins that they are committing in seventeen, verse seventeen to nineteen. Jesus says of them, You say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realising that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me. There's that language from Isaiah again. He's drawing heavily on Isaiah in this letter. He says, Come and buy from me. And we, we know that when Jesus calls us to buy from him, it's always a purchase without any exchange. We don't give him anything except our sins. We don't bring anything that that tips the scales in our our favor or we don't offer him any actual cash value that he would desire. We have nothing he wants except for the souls that we have driven into the dirt. Jesus commands, come and buy from me without any money, quoting Isaiah 5. Come buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself that the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Their complacency and their pride and their lukewarmness is largely to do with their wealth as a city and the the city that the church finds themselves in. There's three reasons. There's three sort of angles that Jesus hits at here. Firstly, is uh, is the gold. He says, "You call yourself rich. You are in fact wretched, pitiable, and poor. Buy from me gold." Reason he's saying is saying this is because Laodicea was a very, very wealthy town. When they were destroyed by an earthquake in AD 60, town was flattened. Usually Rome, the the empire capital, would give plenty of money towards its uh, capital cities in order to rebuild them. Laodicea insulted Rome by not even wanting a penny, and they cashed themselves up and rebuilt their whole town from scratch in a a few short years, uh, sort of a big middle finger to Rome. We're independent, we don't need your money, I'm not a kid anymore, I've got my own cash. That's what Laodicea was saying. They had a lot of gold. And so to be in this town, and Jesus is saying, you say I am rich. Now, he's talking to the church, not just the outside world. You say I am rich. But friends, as we've seen in every letter, in that world, to be wealthy, you had to be committing immense amounts of compromise with the world around you. There's no way you could hold to Christian principles, refuse idolatry, not go to their sick, sinful parties that they would have as a workplace... You could join none of their pagan uh, 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 contracting guilds. You could do none of that if you're a true, uncompromising Christian. And it would always have enormous economical effects. And yet they are rich, thinking it's good for them. And Jesus is saying, no, that's the reason I know that you are compromised. You say, I am rich, but there is no wealth in the world that can pay for pardon for sin. Jesus is saying that they are compromised. They're guilty. They're sinful. They're worldly. They're unholy and impure, therefore they are spiritually impoverished. They're poor. They have nothing in their spiritual account. Which is why he says, not just buy from me gold, as if to insult them. You think you're rich, but you need my gold. But in fact, he's saying, he says, buy from me gold refined by fire. He's putting the emphasis on the gold that is pure. Because your gold is blood-borne. Your gold is impure. Your gold is disgusting and compromised. There's a prophetic language like from the Old Testament, like in a Hosea. And Hosea says to Jerusalem that they say, I am rich, I need nothing, but they have disgusting, compromised money that they've been getting for doing evil things and worshipping evil gods. So this is Jesus' problem with them. Not merely that they have money, but that they have money through compromise. And that they have money and think that means anything in the spiritual realm. And so he tells them they need to buy, not physical cash, but spiritual gold that only Jesus can give. But then secondly, he says, uh, uh, buy for me gold so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and, shame, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Another thing about Laodicea is that they had a, uh, a textile market. They had a huge, they were, one of the ways that they got so wealthy was that they would make these very natural, glossy, Very fine black wool and so all of the rich people in the town and you bet some of the rich people in the church would you would show off your wealth not by gold chains so much not by you know whatever bling and sneakers we would chuck on but rather by wearing the shiny black garments everywhere you went Jesus is saying in sharp contrast to that he says that you are in fact naked In the physical realm, people are looking at you and saying, wow, they're wealthy. Look at all their black clothing. Jesus looks on it and says, that's proving to me that you are not faithful to me, that you are in love with the world and its pleasures, and therefore before me, you're in a fetal position in front of me, filthy, embarrassed, vulnerable, and naked. Pitiable and naked. In the Bible, one of the big things that is just woven together with nakedness is shame the shame of being naked. He says one of the great judgments on, on, uh, on sinners is that they are they don't mind about being uh, naked in big displays together. This is always one of the endpoints of human sinners when there's uh, societies that undress themselves in immodest and horrendous ways. There is such a thing as a good shame, the grace of shame. the fact that God has given to us this, just like when you burn your hand touching a pot that is hot, you withdraw. There is such a thing as shame that God has given to us in the spiritual realm so that when we go too far, we feel that guilt, we feel that disgusting. There's that vulnerability to be exposed before others and we draw back. This happened to Adam and Eve when they first seen, one of the first things they realized was they were exposed, vulnerable and naked for anybody's eyes. This still happens today. Shame is tied with nakedness and Jesus is saying that they are, they have need, they have need for shame because they are naked in front of him. And therefore, he says, "Buy from me white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen." One of the first pictures we have of the gospel in the whole Bible, and I wonder where you would go if I said, "Where's the first clue of the gospel that Jesus would die for our sins in the Bible?" I wonder where you would go. Did you know that we can go as early as Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sin, recognize their nakedness and shame run away, sow for themselves their own works of righteousness to try and hide themselves from God, put on these fig leaves onto themselves. When God finds them, he first removes them in their shame, says those are useless, why are you dressing yourself? And instead, he dresses them with the with the skin of animals. Meaning that for the very first time we had an animal sacrifice, blood being shed, and God covering the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve. That's a picture the gospel that the white garments are not simply that we have worked so hard that we've woven together ourselves something to cover our shame but that we can never do that that God comes to us in our nakedness and shame without any good works and in our sin and says buy from me my garments how do you buy from Jesus his garments to cover your shame simply have faith have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he gives to you his righteousness clothes you in his garments these white garments that hide your shame so that you can access God We can talk to one another. We can think of our creator and judge without shame, without fleeing back, without this disgusting fear of being vulnerable to him. No, rather, we are made infinitely adequate to face him because we are given the righteousness of Jesus in these white robes. And then you also see the language of the I-Self. The I-Self. Laodicea also had a very high-end very famous school of ophthalmology, and they had eye doctors. And they produced the Laodicean eye cell, which was a great ointment that would uh, you know, heal your eyes, it would preserve your eyes, that were very helpful uh, in the ancient world when things like glasses were a little bit less common and probably cheap, they probably didn't cover it on your health insurance and Medicare, was not yet invented. So to be blind in that day was to lose all of your, your work. I mean, to be blind was to be useless, was to be entirely dependent on other people. And they had the salve, they had the way to heal it. So here they are thinking that they see fine, and not only do they see fine, but if they stop seeing fine, we can heal ourselves as well, we're Laodicea. What of it? But Jesus says to them that they are so blind, they don't realize they are blind. They think that in their blindness, that's how life is supposed to be. That's one of the realities of, of, of us born in sin the Bible speaks to us, is that we are so blind, we don't even realise we're blind. We just think the world is supposed to be this dark, this hopeless, this useless, this sinful, this destructive, this deathly. We just live naturally like a fish in water. It doesn't talk about being wet, it's just in water. That's life for a fish, and that's us in our sin, until Jesus comes to us by the Holy Spirit. And as the Gospel is preached, and we believe here, Jesus says, come to me and gain salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In salvation God gives to us, there's all sorts of different language in the New Testament. New hearts, new spirits, new minds, new eyes, new ears, new faculty to understand the world that God made and the gospel that is invisible to the blinded man. You can't understand if you're still dead in your sin. You just don't get the glories of the gospel. You think it's a lifestyle choice to reject or to try out, but to realize that Jesus is the one true God who brings about the world of new creation through his gospel. To realize that and actually trust it is to have been given new eyes by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the invitation to believe on Jesus so that you can see your spiritual state and repent and believe. See him in his glory, though invisible. That you might be clothed so that you are not filthily dressed or that, so that you are not naked and shameful, but clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And of course, to receive from him great. Riches in a spiritual realm because he gives them plentifully. So he calls in 19 and 20. Look at verse 19 and 20. This beautiful paradoxical line of Jesus that goes entirely against what we are told in our world those whom I love I reprove and discipline. We can get into ways of assuming and thinking and tending to, 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 to reason that the less hardship God's bringing God brings into my life, the more he loves me. I have whole gospels that are shaped around it. I have whole churches that promise that. The more godly you are, the more wonderful and tremendous and rich and wealthy your life hello, your life will be. I hope you're listening now. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, the ones that I love are singled out by the fact that I rebuke them. I find them in their sin and I shoot them back to the path. They're like the lamb that walks away. Which lamb does the, the shepherd love more? The sheep that just goes wandering off a cliff? While he's having a cig over here, or the sheep that he pursues hooks, brings back, and throws back into the fold. Jesus loves those he reproves and disciplines, and he disciplines those he reproves and disciplines those that he loves. Therefore, he says, "Be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent." I'm waiting for you to do the sound thing again when I say repent. That'd be really handy. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, that is true repentance. You listen to my command and you zealously run to the door to allow me in and heed my warnings. I will eat with him and he with me. We referenced before the bitterness that kind of existed between Rome and Laodicea because Laodicea was independent and rich. One of the things that Rome, Rome always got the the upper hand, uh, always got the last word. You never ticked off Rome. Unless you Jesus, you never take on Rome. Uh, and what they they would do was insulted by Laodicea. They would, they sent their soldiers into Laodicea to sort of. Uh, um, uh Watch the area, right? That's what Rome did. They they kept soldiers all over the empire. But in Laodicea, they were forced to billet the the, the, uh, the soldiers out into the houses, right? So the soldiers would come, they didn't have headquarters, they would stay in people's houses. It wasn't entirely uncommon. But in Laodicea, in order to sort of get back at them and in order to funnel money back into Rome, they would uh, heavily tax the billet the, the household they were staying in. The soldiers would come in any house that the soldier came up to with the Roman uh, authority, knocked on their door, they would have to be allowed in, and then they would eat those families dry. They would take all their food, they would demand huge amounts of uh, uh, resources and all that. It was a curse to have the Roman soldiers be knocking on your door. And here is Jesus using this, this very likely historical reference to that, this idea that he now comes and knocks. And his arrival is not a curse unless we don't open it. His arrival is not a curse unless we think we're rich and we can see and I'm clothed and I don't need Jesus. Jesus comes to the church. And on an individual up to a corporate scale, they need to repent and allow Jesus' words to conform them so that they let him in. So that they they obey what he is commanding and he will come and meet with them. And they will eat with him. A great, a great theme from the beginning of the Bible to the end is the great feast that God wishes and wills and will bring about to have with His people. Everybody loves a good party. The feast is lost on us in our generation because we can drop by and, uh, and, and get through the drive-through. That we get angry if it takes more than one minute, and they make us park around the side. No way to get me more angry. Tell me to park around the side on a Sunday afternoon. Happened today. I tell you what, I'm not a Christian when that happens. We get feasts whenever we want, how delivered to our door, right? The ancient world, the idea of a feast was so alien to most people. The idea of going to bed, not starving hungry, was, alien, or was, was uh, alien to most people. And yet Jesus is saying, I will eat with you, and you will eat with me. I will be a blessing unto you in a covenantal meal. Not an exacting, cursing Roman soldier. And therefore we go back to Isaiah 55. And Jesus is speaking of this meal that they can share. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. With what? I have no money. That's fine. Bring your nothingness. If you say to the Lord Jesus, I have money, I don't want to pay nothing. I have riches, I have good works, I can see I'm actually better than most sinners, but I can come and I'll give you a little something, then Jesus will have nothing. You'll have nothing to do with you. He'll cast you out and vomit you out. Only Christians, only people, only sinners who come to the point of realizing I have nothing to give, the only way I can gain is if God entirely gives the blessings to me. Only to those people does Jesus invite. Come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Seek the Lord while he may be found, verse 6. Call upon him while he is near, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the promise of the gospel that is even applied to the rebellious, lukewarm Later see in church that have been blaspheming Jesus and compromising with the world every day of their existence since they went bad, even to them, even to us, even to whoever you are, realizing that you're outside of Jesus. He command he commands and promises all of these blessings to you. And therefore he says, lastly, The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father. On his throne. This is one of the apexes of all every letter he's ended with some great and enormous beautiful promise. And I think one of the best ones that I loved was when he said that that if you conquer, you will rule with me with a rod of iron over the nations, like God will use us through Jesus to bring about the reign of Jesus Christ in the world through conversions and building the church. That is cosmic. That is awesome. And you could imply from that that we're sort of sharing Jesus' royal reign, and we're pretty close to the throne. But here, Jesus says, in his own words, that we will sit on the Father's throne. Because there's only one throne. He says, you'll sit with me on my throne, just as I sat on my Father's throne. So Jesus is on the Father's throne. There is one throne reigning the universe, and to that throne, he promises a seat for us. Not physically, no. Will we be up there getting worshiped with Jesus in heaven? Absolutely not. What he is calling for, what he's promising, is covenantal authority. Is, is to be under his divine promise of protection and love and care as a king. Nothing like Nero. Nothing like an emperor of the ancient world. He would love and personally protect anyone who conquers. That is, anybody who resists the temptation of la- of the of being lukewarm. Resist the temptation of the world to be like them and compromise and walk in their sin and to tolerate a lukewarm church. All of those temptations, if you resist them and if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and expect from Him and Him alone on the basis of His promise, riches and spiritual sight and clothing over your soul, if you promise, if you rely on Him for those things, then Jesus says, "'You will be given by Me the greatest authority that can be given.'" And I will use you in my rule and reign. You will be as close to the Father's heart as I am. The Father will love you as much as he loves me, his son. You will have the inheritance that I have as the Father's son. You will sit with me as I sat with my Father. What a glorious promise to recall on this Father's Day. The Father has loved and blessed and promised the Son, all things to the Son. And the Son then turns and promises it all to us. God would have us, as this letter tells us, God would have us taste the bitterness of sin, both in the words that He speaks and sometimes in our actual life. He just lets our sin catch up with us, put us to shame, embarrass us, hurt us and other people. He lets that happen so that we would then be able to taste the sweetness of gospel. Like, did, just, did Jesus just say to this church, you're like vomit. I want to spit you out. I will make you pavement pizza. Is that what he said to them? Yeah. Did he entirely shame them and say, you're a naked, filthy, adulterating mess of human beings? Yes. Did he mean them? Yes. Does he then promise that he can turn that pile of vomit into princes, queens, and kings? Absolutely. To the most wretched, pitiable, and poor. Jesus wants our sinfulness to be put on full display for us. And then he brings us into the glorious promises of the gospel. So what does it mean to have ears that hear, as he says here, closing out in verse, at the, in verse 22. What does it mean to have ears that hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? To have ears that hear is to be the people who conquer. That is to be people truly born again, who, who respond to the gospel call of Jesus. And then the continual call of Jesus at the beginning of your life and in every day of your life, Jesus' call is rely on no other riches but my riches. Rely on no other sight but the sight that comes through my word. Rely on no other clothing before God but the clothing that is given from me. If you trust that above every other temptation, and not just to trust it, but for it to change the way you live, then you are a conqueror and Jesus promises his throne. But that throne is a throne over a kingdom. And both throne and kingdom require repentance for entrance. Revelation 21 verse 8 says that of the kingdom, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is immense. That's the whole Bible summed up right there. The blessing that God gives to sinful humanity is that I will be his God and he will be my son. But, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When Jesus says the one that conquers escapes that, he doesn't then list a, a, a whole bunch of tremendous things that conquerors do. You know what defines a conqueror? Somebody who has repented of that sin, turned from it, and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that if you have lived in and all kinds of mixtures of those things, cowardness cowardliness, faithlessness, detestableness, murder, sexual immorality, sorcerers, black magic types of idolaters, worshipping other gods, lying, your rightful portion is in the lake of fire that never goes out. And the only way you can escape that is being this conqueror type person, which is to have faith and believe in Jesus Christ. If you have done that, then you don't need to identify with those things. You need to repent of those things. You need to continue to walk away from those things. But your title, your name, as we learned last week, is not sinner, adulterer, sexual immoral, sorcerer, liar anymore. Your name is Jesus' purchased child. Your name is is God's own name planted and stamped on you in ownership. That's what we learned last week. So for those who would be bold enough to believe the gospel promises of Jesus, that they apply to you and over all of your sins, you're a conqueror, God will be your God, and we will be his people into eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected, reigning, truly God, the creator of the world and the first Elements of the new creation that is coming. You have said in Revelation that you are making all things new. You are the firstborn. Our souls come next and then the world to follow. Father God, we trust that though it is unseen, that is the true story of human history. That is truly where the world is going. We want to align ourselves with that. We wanted to think of our lives and the whole of this planet and the cosmos in light of what you have said. And therefore, Lord God, we realize, would you give to our hearts a sense of urgency and reality and clarity that Jesus is the resurrected Saviour and Lord, that He has died for us in reality. That is not just a, a, a placard. That is not just something we say to ourselves to feel good. That is in reality that Jesus has discharged our debt and offers to us riches and new sight and clothing to make us fit into Your presence. Father God, would You press that into our souls and into our minds, so that it flows out into action and decision and change and repentance in the week. We pray, Lord God, for those who, who are still in rejection against Jesus, who are still holding on to their sin, who are still unbelieving and refusing to come to God for salvation and forgiveness. Would you call them tonight, Lord, in a way that they cannot help, that they cannot stop, and that they cannot walk away from. Would you bring them to Jesus by faith? Would you let them believe, hope, trust, rest on everything that Jesus has promised in this passage and in the Bible? Father God, make this a church that identifies, that glorifies, that that uh, prioritizes above all things. Your name and your word. Your gospel and your kingdom. Our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our strength and our portion forever. And without him, we would be a lukewarm, disgusting church. So God, preserve us and bless us. It is in the name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. And everybody said...